2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. There were two great debates in the first century in regard to the second coming of Jesus. And the first one we've been dealing with in these weeks, and that was by the scoffers who said it would never happen. And so in verses 3 through and 4, 3 and 4, we saw that knowing this, first of all, Peter says that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So one of the great statements that was being made as Peter was writing this letter is that the second coming would never happen. The end of the age would never happen. The second great debate, and it really caused a lot of problems within the church in Thessalonica in Greece, was that it had already happened. And it had caused such great consternation with that church that Paul wrote this letter of Second Thessalonians to help them understand that it had not happened. Just listen to these words. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in your mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, Paul said, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So these two things were already happening. The church had been around for just about three and a half decades or so, or three decades. Already, the great debate was, it's not going to happen. There's not going to be a second coming. And then the other one was, the second coming had already happened. And so they were already having to deal with these things. And as we've been talking in these months in Second Peter, these things have been a part of the church, and they will continue to be a part of the church. I just want to, I want to take a moment, and I just want to make you aware of something, in case you weren't aware. Um, I, I, I hammer this home with us all the time in regard to culture and things of that nature um, of what I think is coming to this country. And I think there's going to be more and more restrictions on the things that uh, potentially are said from churches and, and other things. California on Monday did not pass a law, but they passed a resolution in their legislature in California that in churches that pastors no longer could speak out against homosexuality. Um, they also, in the resolution, said that if you attempt to uh, help someone get out of that lifestyle and, and basically uh, are saying to them that the way you're living is wrong, then um, you are causing harm to those people. That happened on Monday, one week ago in California. Now, it wasn't a law that was passed. It was a resolution, but you know, there's going to be the continued pushing of these things. And so I, I want to bring them out to point them out to us along the way as we come so that you and I are prepared. This, what Peter is dealing with, what happened in California on Monday, this is not anything new. The church for 2,000 years has had to deal with societal pressure. So outside pressure, persecution, control of government on the church about what the church can and cannot do, what the church can say and cannot say. And then the church has had to deal with for 2,000 years the collapse from within. And I personally believe the greater danger is not the government, it's not California. The greater danger is that you and I don't know God's Word. So we will fall prey to whatever comes along 
And, just, and so that's why it's important for us to know this. That's why it was important for Peter to write a first letter to a group of persecuted believers and then to write a second letter, a letter to those believers who are still being persecuted but were dealing with something that I think was far greater than Nero. And that was apostate teaching, false teaching. So Peter's wanting to straighten this out. He's wanting to tell them, listen, the second coming has not happened um, it is coming in the future, and so those who are saying that it's not going to come, they are wrong. So in our culture today, it speaks of the origin of the universe with something called the Big Bang Theory. That there was big collision way some in the past, and all of this stuff began to happen in regard to creation, evolution, all of this stuff. Well, today I want to talk about the Great Burn Theory, not the Great Big Bang Theory. And what I want to talk about today is this, is that eventually God's going to do away with everything we see, everything that man has created, everything, because God is going to make way for a new heaven and a new earth. And this reality brings to you and I this great, great hope that God is going to get rid of sin. He's going to forever deal with Satan. He's going to forever deal deal with all of that and so that you and I can walk in the abundance of, here on earth, knowing what is coming and where our eternal home is going to be. So let's look with me now, if you would, in Second Peter chapter 3, and let's look at 10 through 13. Here's what Peter says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, or His word, We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What I would like to talk about today is I want to talk about where righteousness is going to permanently dwell. But I want to talk about what precedes that um, at the very end. So if you'll notice, um, if you'll look at, look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord, you see that? Okay. And then when you go down, you will see in and hastening the day of God. I believe these are two different time periods. Um, There's been a lot of debate throughout history. Let me just deal with this idea of these things here because you will see these in the New Testament. There is the day of Christ that the Bible writes about. As a matter of fact, actually Paul writes about it. I believe when it says the day of Christ, I believe that's the rapture. I believe that is a reference in Thessalonians to the rapture where God takes the church, Christ comes not all the way to the earth as he does in the second coming, but he comes, he takes his bride, he raptures the church that's on the earth that is alive. He, we leave the ground, we go with him, and, and we're taken into heaven. I believe that's what the day of Christ is. Then there is this verse here that speaks of the day of the Lord. I believe the day of the Lord consists of two parts. One part is when Christ literally returns, Revelation 19, riding on a white horse, He will put his feet literally on the ground. He will establish a millennial kingdom. 
There will be a great battle that will happen that day. Well, not really a great battle. He just will speak and slay his enemies and, and, kind of, and, and things will be established with the millennial kingdom. So that's the first part of it. The second part of the day of the Lord, I believe, is what Peter is now referencing here. And that is um, the, this, this great reality of that he will deal with all things in the very end and he will burn things um, with fire. So I think there's two aspects of the day of the Lord coming when the millennial kingdom is set up and then the other one is where he will destroy the creation by fire and then there is what he says there um, in verse 13 there is what the scripture says the day of God and I believe that is when the new heavens and the new earth are going to um, be established so let's talk um, about verse 10 just for a moment so let's talk about this this reality of what is put forth here So Peter says there's a certainty of his coming. He says the day of the Lord will come. It will come. It's coming. It is a certain reality. And so he says there is a certainty of his coming. The day of the Lord will come. Two things connected with that. You can count on it. You can count on it. The day of the Lord will come. There's no way to predict when it is going to come. But it is like a train running down the tracks coming that there is going to be a certain end to it. The day of the Lord will come, Peter says. And so you can count on it. Secondly, you can count on it. Secondly, you cannot predict it. Um, It is going to come like a thief. Um, I remember I, I, I was probably in fourth grade or so, grew up in Waco, Texas. Winter time, pretty rare for snow to come to Waco, Texas, but snow came. Um, I remember the next morning, I remember the day before, playing out in the snow, awesome, didn't come, having a great day, and then the next day waking up and discovering that someone had lifted up a window and come in through the window, stepped onto my brother's bed and invaded our home and had robbed us in the night while our whole family was asleep. And I remember the next night, as probably I was about nine or ten years old, lying in my bed thinking, um, not being able to go to sleep, thinking, oh, they're going to come back tonight. And if you've ever had that where there's been an invasion in your life where somebody's come in and taken something where you were, and again, my whole family, we were all in the house, all asleep that night. Um, and it came like a thief in the night, and it came suddenly, unexpectedly, we were not ready. And so, so Peter says this, listen, Here's the reality. There's a certainty of its coming. It is going to happen. You can count on it. And when it comes, you're not going to be able to predict it. It's going to be like a thief who comes in the night where you were unaware and will come and it will happen suddenly. So that's what he says there, coming like a thief. The next part there. And the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. This is a reference here for sinners, not for Christians. Christians will be expecting the coming of Jesus. It is going to be the non-believers who are not going to be expecting, and they will be the least expectant ones of His coming. Believers are not going to be surprised. The Scripture has been telling us, Jesus told us this, that He is going to come, and that the ultimate day of God, the end of the world as we know it, is going to come. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. 
So the phenomena of the day of the Lord, first of all, is there is a certainty of His coming. He will come suddenly. And thirdly, when this ultimate day of the Lord comes, it's going to be, and you will like this, my alliterations, it will be a cosmic, cataclysmic event. I mean, it is going to be worldwide, universe-wide, furthest parts of the universe will be in a part of what will happen. And so look what Peter says in the last part of verse 10. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. This word here in the Greek literally is elements. It's a Greek word that talks about the air, the atoms, mountains, rocks, jewels, everything, clouds, water, everything will melt away. And it will be a day of sound. It will come like a roar, Peter says. This word roar in the Greek was what the Greeks used when a when an archer pulled their arrow back and let go of the arrow. And if you were near the target or if you were somewhere along the line, as the arrow came past you, you would hear the whiz of the arrow. The Greeks also used this to describe a snake that hissed right before it struck. And so Peter says, listen, this is what's coming. There is going to be this great day of this roar. And it's going to be like this arrow that is coming to the target that God has designed. It is like a snake hissing right before it strikes. And it is going to be a day of sound. When God does this, the heavens will pass away the certainty of it with a roar. And then he says this, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. There are two meanings here. In the Greek, for being burned up and dissolved. The first one simply means this, to loosen something, loosen it, so that it eventually moves to a place where it dissolves. And the second meaning of this word is setting something free that has been bound. Two meanings of this Greek word here. And so this is going to be eventually, there's coming a day with everything that we see where all of the elements of the world, planets, stars, rocks, water, clouds, the earth, the Himalayas, everything will be scorched. And they will be dissolved. They will be broken up. This is the same word that's used here that John the Baptist used when he said, the one who's coming, I'm not unworthy to unloosen the strap on his sandals. It's that idea the world has been bound since sin entered it. And God's going to put it out of its misery in a sense because of what happened and he's going to destroy it and as he destroys it it is to make way for a new place for you and I who have faith in him for you and I to live and so he says this it's coming with a roar the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved he's going to set free what has been bound and that's this world and its chaos in regard to sin and what happened and death and destruction and the enemy and uh, Satan And he says that it will be burned up. This word burned up in the Greek means burning with a fever. And there's coming a day as we near that where the earth is going to be like it's got a fever. It's going to be so sick because of what God is having to bring. And he's bringing these judgments upon the earth that it's like a fever. And it's a medical term that God will set the earth free from the fever that it has. Now, you and I know this. Um... I've never been at a place. I remember, I think I was in eighth grade. Um, my youngest brother, my middle brother, not youngest, my middle brother, Doug, 
was, um, gosh, he must have been probably in the second grade or so. And we were in South Padre Island, and we had gone out into the water, and we had gotten to a place where if you've ever been out in the ocean before and, and you kind of get pushed a little bit and you kind of get further out there, we got to a place where I couldn't stand anymore and he couldn't stand anymore, and I felt a little bit of the undertow grab me. And I had to make a decision in that moment. And I remember, I think I was, again, I think I was probably 7th or 8th grade, most likely 8th grade. And I remember that I grabbed my brother's, his hamstrings underneath, and I remember lifting up over my head to where I barely got to a place where I could put my feet there. And I'd made a decision that I was going to drown, but I was going to make sure that he stayed up above and that I could at least get him to a place where um, he could possibly swim to shore. But I was ready at that moment um, to not be here on the earth anymore. And so I tried to find with my feet some place that I could. And with water, when water comes, sometimes you can grab something, maybe a log that's there or maybe there's a tree or something. And, and when the flood came with Noah's generation, um, they were able to get inside the ark. There was a place to be. But listen to this. When the fire, the fiery flood comes in the end days, there is no place to grab. Fire scorches everything. Everything is destroyed. With water, hope, even though it's powerful, you can grab on something and maybe it will carry you to something that you can grab. But this idea here is not that there's going to be something you can grab onto because everything is going to melt away and it is going to dissolve. And the only thing that's going to be left is that God is going to have this new heaven and this new earth that is going to be there so that you and I will live in. And so I, I want to remind you and I this morning, we need to be, as Christians, good stewards of God's creation. We should. God created this world. We should take care of the world. Um, we, should, we should honor the beauty of what, what He has put forth. The environmentalists who scream and harp on the reality that man is going to destroy the world, they are wrong. God is going to destroy the world. We're not. We're not going to destroy it through nuclear war. We're not going to destroy this world through the polar ice caps melting. Guess who's going to melt the polar ice caps? God is. God is going to bring about this. And so again, there's a balance there of we are good stewards of what God has created. But ultimately, God is going to be the one who brings the fire to the earth. And God will bring a final a finality to things in regard to the earth and when he does that peter says in the last part of verse 10 that when he does this the earth and the works that are done on the earth they will all be exposed jesus spoke about this paul wrote about this and peter is writing about it here and they are saying this there is coming a day where things hidden are going to be what they're going to be exposed they will be seen and on this final aspect of things before this world is no more, God will bring about a fiery judgment where the earth and the universe and the heavens that we know them here, they will be done away with, and God will bring His final judgment on all those things. And before the earth is destroyed, God will show what the world is really like, that the world has been in rebellion against Him. And, and we don't want as much beauty as on this planet today, and there is incredible beauty, is there not, on this planet we don't want this place staying around because this place cannot be fully redeemed. It has to be done away with so that our ultimate home, our eternal state, will eventually come. And God's great patience 
is continuing on in these moments right now. But eventually, his patience is going to end. And he's going to bring a finality about this. One day, his patience will run out. And he will have exhausted his long suffering with man's rebellion. And we've talked about this in these days. The only reason this finality of things has not come is because God is wanting more people to enter into the kingdom. So everything, watch this, everything is going to be wiped clear. Just like if you mark on a board and you go up and you erase it and it's just gone, you can't see what was there, what was present. God literally is going to wipe everything away for this purpose to make way for something new. And I believe this, what is coming, is beyond our imagination. We will talk about that here in just a moment. But I think since everything here is going to be wiped away, nothing here is going to last. No retirement account's going to last. No house is going to last. No business is going to last. No relic of the earth, no great monument of the world is going to last. Nothing is going to last. And so since nothing is going to last, what kind of people do you and I need to be? And that's Peter's point as he moves on to the next point. He says this, in light of the reality, nothing here is going to last. The scoffers will say, all things have been continuing on as they were from the beginning of the creation. No, they are not going to be. There is coming a day where God is going to melt all things in a fiery judgment. And so in light of that, and nothing is going to last, everything is going to dissolve. What kind of people, knowing that is coming, what kind of people should we be now? Not what kind of people should we be in the days ahead, but how should that reality impact our lives? And so let's look at what is the pathway to be prepared for this coming that Peter is writing about? Look at verse 11. So he tells us, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to to his promise in the first part of verse 13. So let's talk about this just for a moment. What's, how do we prepare for its coming? How do we allow what's coming to impact us on the last day of June 2019? How should we live? How should we respond? What kind of people should we be? And I want to give several things here. And the first one is simply this. We must be the kind of people who embrace the sojourner's life. We embrace the sojourner's life. And I think you find that in verse 11a. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? And so, since nothing is going to last, every building, every treasure, every business, every ancient site, all of them are going to be gone. Knowing this, you and I ought to strongly consider what kind of people are we going to be? What decisions are we going to make? How are we going to live? All things now, by the way, are in the process of this dissolution that is coming. Everything. Got a car? It's great. Just wait about five years. What's it going to do? It's going to break down. It's going to fall apart. You got a house you've had for a while? What happens over time? It does. Storm arises yesterday. Whips up really bad. 
Taylor household, 1716, the whole back fence falls down. Nothing lasts here. Nothing that man creates, nothing that man does, nothing, watch this, that God originally created is going to last. Nothing that He originally created is going to last. Nothing that we have created is going to last. And so in in light of all of this reality coming in the future, how should you and I live? And I think one thing is we embrace the sojourner's life. And that means this. I am not a citizen of this planet. It's where I am right now, but my home is somewhere else. Peter writes about, or Paul writes about this in Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven where we are awaiting a Savior. So this is not our home. So we don't do everything that we can here to get as much here. We set aside treasure in heaven. We want to live in such a way that we know this and we recognize this and we're communicating to God. I'm not trying to build a kingdom here. I'm trying to build your kingdom so that people will come to know you because I know that you are going to bring an end to all of these things. And so since the world is going to burn, you and I must not give ourselves over to the pleasures of this world and the pursuit of these things. We should devote our lives to walking with Him. And Peter's going to tell us here in two powerful ways. Listen to how Paul said we ought to live. Colossians 3, 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, you seek the things that are above, not the things here. You seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, he says, on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, watch this, you have died, you're living here, you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Where is He? Well, He said in verse 1, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. You have died, so you're hidden with Him. He, you're in Him. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So you seek the things where you really are, and that's heavenly things. And so He says this, And when Christ, watch, who is your life appears, then you will appear with Him also in glory. Why? Because we're in Him. And so when He comes, guess what we do? If we're in Him, we go where He goes. So when He comes and He makes His appearance, we're in Him. We come with Him. And so Peter says this. Listen, you embrace the sojourner's life. You are passing through this world. You are passing through. Secondly, he says, there's life's critical choice. There's a choice that we have to be made. Since all things are going to burn, all things are going to dissolve, not all things are going to last, there's a critical choice. And so he makes this statement. That's not a question, by the way. Um, the translation here is just sometimes it's hard with the translation. That, uh, there's, a, there's a comma in here, a comma. There's not a question mark. But if you read it, if you're careful, you might could read this to say, Peter saying, so what kind of people do you want to be? It's not what he's saying. It's an imperative statement. He's saying in light of the reality that everything is going to be dissolved, it's an emphatic statement. This is the kind of people that you have to be. If you've been redeemed by Christ, this is the kind of people you ought to be. And so this word ought means this is something that is a necessity for your life. If we know Christ this morning in this room, and we know Him, we know that nothing is going to last. This building is not going to last. 
Collin County is not going to last. The United States of America is not going to last. Nothing is going to last. In light of that reality, how do we live today? What is the necessity for how we live? Two things. You ought to live holy lives and you ought to live godly lives. Holiness refers to um, our conduct, our actions, and how we live our lives. Godliness has to do with the kind of reverence that we have toward God, our piety toward God, our reverence of who He is. So I'm going to actions walk in holiness because I know that He is holy, and therefore the motivation that I have to walk in holiness is this desire to be like God and to give reverence to God by walking in holiness. And so these are Two separate words that are very similar together. Godliness has more to do with our attitude and our reverence for who He is. And holiness has to do with how we live our lives. And so watch what Peter is saying here. In light of the day of God that's coming, where there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, there's going to be a finality to the day of the Lord. That's going to start with the second coming of Jesus, who establishes a millennial kingdom here. At the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan will be loosed. He will go out and he will gather the nations who haven't come to faith in Christ in the millennial kingdom. And they will draw up battle outside of Jerusalem in Megiddo. And there will be one last battle. And Jesus will speak and it will all be over. In light of that coming and that after that he's going to do away with everything that we know. How should we live our lives today? And so Peter says you live your lives today in holiness and reverence, mainly because of where we're headed. Because when you think about where we're headed, it is mind-blowing and mind-staggering. And so since Christ is going to return in frightening judgment, you and I must live in reverence and godliness and holiness in light of that day. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews twelve twenty-eight and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so, therefore, let us offer an acceptable offering of worship to God with reverence and awe. For our God, the writer says, is a consuming fire. Knowing that He's a consuming fire, that He's going to consume all things that we know by fire, how do we live today Will we offer an acceptable sacrifice of worship and reverence and awe because of who He is? Because He is a consuming fire. And so Peter says, embrace the sojourner's life knowing that nothing is going to last. Then you've got to make a critical choice as you do that. Are you going to live for your pleasures or are you going to live in godliness and holiness? And as you do that, You're going to have to wait. And so he says this. Here's the next part of living prepared, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And so look in verse 12. He just says that phrase, waiting for, in the Greek. This word means to expect. This word pros, um, P-R-O-S, that's the prefix of this Greek word there, um, indicates having your mind thinking toward, waiting, thinking on what is coming in the future. So it's a mental idea that you are thinking about. Listen to me, church, this morning. Boys and girls, 
students, adults, there shouldn't be a lot of time that passes in our life without thinking about the reality is that He is coming and He's going to make all things new. And that reality that He's going to destroy everything, it's all going to be gone to make way for our eternal home should impact us today and we should be thinking on it. And as we think on it, Peter's implication with that is this. It will lead to godly thinking, godly living, and holy living. And so he says this, waiting for, in the next part of verse 12 he says, and hastening. That's The word hastening means to desire earnestly. We think of hastening of, let's hurry it up. We, we, we're, not in, we're not in control of hurrying God up. But this word hasten, in, in this context, literally means this. It just means, I'm desiring earnestly for my new home. Now, let me, let me point this out to make sure it's not confusing. We don't want this world to last anymore because of all the heartache that's there. So we want it to be done away with. But we don't want to be the kind of people who get so excited about God burning up people and destroying people. Listen, we want, we want the Muslims who hate our, our God, we want them to come to faith. We want the Hindus who worship all these idols and, and hate Jesus or just throw kind of Jesus as a, another person in there. The atheists who just say Jesus isn't real. It, it should... It, it should To just overwhelm us that people are going to be separated from God for all of eternity. So, so we, we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. We, we want His coming to come, but we also, we also don't want people to burn in hell forever. Are you all with me? We don't want that. And we want Christ to we want people to enter the kingdom. And so we're not getting, Peter's not saying, get excited about people going to hell. That's not... That's, that's not what's there. Now, we want God to judge His enemies. We want that to happen. We don't want death to reign. We don't want sin to reign. We don't want any of that to continue on. And so, so God has to dissolve all things to make way for what is coming. And so we desire it, but we also at the same time say, Lord, come. But we also, we also want people to come into the kingdom. And so... So there's that idea, and so he's, he, he says here, to finish this up before we move on to our last thing this morning, as he says this, you've got you to know this, church. You've got to know this, church. And so he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? We ought to live holy lives and godly lives, waiting for, thinking on, expecting, anticipating, desiring the coming of the day of God. Because we don't want to live here forever. We want to live in our eternal state with Him. And we'll see in a moment why that is so amazing. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But then he says this. But according to His promise. He says this. But according to His promise. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. In which righteousness dwells. How can we trust in what's coming? How do we know about its certainty? Well, Peter said to us that because God said it's coming, guess what? It's coming. 
Jesus said to the apostles in the upper room, hey, I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you. And they asked this question, where are you going? And he's like, I've been telling you, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm not staying here forever. And if I go away, I'm going to prepare, prepare a place for you. And guess what? I'm going to come back for you so that where I am, you may also be with me. And so, listen, church. The beauty and the power of what Peter's saying here is incredible. Because nothing here is lasting, don't spend your days acting like this is it. So accumulate, eat, drink, and be merry. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and yet what? Lost his soul. So don't live in such a way that you're going to get it is not going to last. God's going to bring a final judgment. It's not going to be here. So you don't think about this world here so much. You think about that there's a place that, because I know Christ, that I'm going to live, that it's going to be so different than this life, that that reality of what He's to, a place of no heartache, no crying, no shame, no regret, none of that. In light of where He is sending me, in light of He's going to dissolve the brokenness of this world because you don't want this around for all of eternity, in light of that reality, that those two truths, dissolving new heavens and new earth, should impact our lives today, June the 30th, 2019, should impact our lives in, in such a powerful way, knowing where we are headed and that nothing here lasts, that it builds up this anticipation and this joy in our heart to trust His promise that He will bring these things to pass. And then he closes, Peter does, and he speaks about the permanence of a place called righteousness and where God's holiness and God's presence and God's people will dwell. And so look at all of 13. But according to the word of God, His promise, we are waiting, thinking on, anticipating for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So God is going to get rid of the world through fire to make way for a new heavens and a new earth. And I want to look at those details. And so the only way to do that is to go to Revelation chapter 21. So if you would, go there with me. And I want to talk about the permanence of the dwelling place of righteousness. Revelation 21. And we're just going to look at 1 through 4. Let's read 1 now. Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. If you go to Revelation 20, verse 11, look what it says there. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. There's this imagery of this dissolving this getting away and the earth and the sky disappear so this verse reveals the earth and the sky revelation twenty eleven, as we know them will be 
literally gone. And 21.1 says, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So let me talk about a couple of things here. And the first one is the word new. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The former things have passed away. And as God does this, God reveals His new creation. And this new heaven and this new earth will be somewhat similar to the first earth, but it will also be very different. It will be a perfect world, one where sin will never be able to mar the beauty of anything anymore, nor can it touch our lives anymore. And this is truly amazing. This new world will be a perfect one, filled by perfect people who have a perfect God, who will not have the capacity for anything but goodness. There will be no no anything awful, no anything bad. Isaiah prophesied about this. And think about this for a moment. This is fascinating. People ask this question from time to time. When we get to heaven, if I die today and I were to go to heaven and be with God, would would I remember things here? Will I remember things in the future, and particularly in regard to the new heavens and the new earth? Will we remember what the old world was like? Listen to what Isaiah said. Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or even come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever. And that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. Let me tell you the beauty and the serenity of the new earth will be so wonderful that all of even the beauties of this life will not be remembered. You mean I won't remember going to that place and I won't remember that? No, because you know why? Because where we're going to is going to be so amazing. It's going to be so fresh every moment, every second, every millisecond, and so overwhelming and so glorious. Isaiah says, and he's quoting God, that God says, you're not going to remember the old thing. I'm doing something new. And part of the something new is to not remember the something old. So Isaiah says here, They're not even going to come to mind. And this new heaven and this new earth is not going to be a redecorated one. We'll redecorate our home and think it's kind of new. No, he's not redecorating this earth. He's not going to renovate it. He's going to dissolve it and he's going to make something new. And this word new in the Greek here literally means this. Something that's different from the usual. Something that is impressive. It also means something that is better than the old. Something that is superior in value. In a sense, the old just becomes obsolete. And it's replaced by something new that is so overwhelming that we will not even remember what had come from the past. And then John says, and there will be no sea. There'll be no sea. Revelation 4, 6 tells us that before the throne of God now, there is a sea. He said in Revelation 4, 6, and before the throne, um, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So somehow right now, before the throne of God, there's a sea. We know in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no sea. There's what flowing? There's a river. It's the only water that's there. 
96% of the water that is on planet Earth today resides in the oceans. 4% of it resides in rivers, ponds, lakes, and things of that nature. Water is an essential for life here. In the new heavens and the new earth, guess what we don't need? Water. It's not there. Now, there's a river that flows, and it flows by in the, these fruit trees and, that are for the healing of the nations. Revelation speaks about those things. Here, water is an absolute necessity for life, but in the new heaven and the new earth, water will not be that case. And it's highly likely that we don't... That as John, let me just say this, it's highly likely that as John is trying to describe the new heaven and the new earth, he's having to use old earth language. I just happen to believe that when he says he's going to do away with the old things, that he's really going to do with a lot of the, there'll be some similarities, but he's going to do a lot of things with it. And what's new is going to be so new, newer versions of things. There'll be things that are going to exist that don't exist now. So don't ask me the question, what is that? I can't tell you because it doesn't exist now. Our God is not so limited that He's exhausted what He can create. He's going to create something absolutely amazing. Not only is it going to be new and it's going to be our permanent eternal home. It'll be new. There'll be no sea. But secondly, it's going to be a permanent city. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This new creation is a fascinating thought. I think it's beyond our comprehension. John goes on to say this. I saw a new city. It's a new Jerusalem, and it was coming down from God out of heaven. There's three Jerusalems. There's the ancient city of Jerusalem. There's the millennial city of Jerusalem, where Christ will sit on His throne for a thousand years. And then there's going to be this eternal Jerusalem, where we will live together with all of people, saints past, present, future, and we will live, and it will be the eternal city for the people of God. And there are five things to see about this eternal city, this permanent city, and it's the promise of it. God had promised that it's coming. He promised that it's coming. Listen to what Jesus said in Revelation 3.12. The one who conquers, this is what I'm going to do to my children. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. The promise of this permanent city is sure in five ways. We will be a pillar in the temple of God, of my God, which is strange in a moment we're going to read that there is no temple in heaven, in this new heaven, but he's making us a temple in that, and the imagery there is incredible. It's because we're not holding up a structure. It's because he is the temple, and we're a part of that, and we're a pillar because we're part of the eternal city. Never shall he go out of it. We will never be cast out. Keith Grissom likes tattoos. Some of us have tattoos. 
Some of us are like, I'm never getting a tattoo. Well, God's going to put a tattoo on us in heaven. We're going to have something written on us called Jerusalem. Jesus' name. He's going to write the name of the Father on us. He's going to write the name of the new Jerusalem on us. He's going to write the, name, the, new, the new name of Jesus on us. Now, can we fully explain what that means? I don't know. No, I don't know. John just said, this is what I saw. And there was stuff written on people that were there. Identifying them as gods. They belonged to God. He had possession of them. And they were living in the promise of this eternal kingdom. Not only is the promise of this eternal city, but it's a pure city. He said this, And I saw the holy city. No longer will there be any sin. Those who sin, they will be out. They will be separated from Him in hell. And because of its purity, sinners are not allowed inside. There will not be any sin, not even any availability, possibility ever for sin. John writes this in Revelation 21.8. John writes this in Revelation 22.15 when he talks about things outside of the city, this imagery of nothing inside the city. And I tell you, it's really hard to imagine a city where every person, every action, every thought, everything that happens is holy for we know cities and they're just full of crime and evil and awfulness. And God will give the faithful faithlessness people exactly what they wanted they didn't want him and so he gives them exactly what they wanted he doesn't give them himself and they are eternally separated from him but for those of us who know him it's a permanent city and it's a holy city it is connected to the promise of god and thirdly it comes from god it's coming down out of heaven from God. It proceeds from God Himself, and it is a brand new city. And it's pictured by John almost as a gift coming. So, where is heaven? Well, it's up somewhere. Where? I don't know. I think pretty up. And it's going to come from Him. Lastly, about the permanent city is that it's perfect or second to last it's perfect it comes from God no part of man's design will be in it and it's clear that the city as it comes down from God has already been created and it's already in existence and it is coming from him and it is prepared John says fifthly about this permanent city it is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband this word adorned in the greek means heavily decorated at the marriage supper of the lamb the bride the church is dressed in fine linen covered that we see that in revelation 19 verse 8 the new jerusalem watch this is wearing and adorned by the glory and magnificence of god and full of precious stones. We see that in Revelation 21, 11. This is no average city. Nor will it be quickly or haphazardly put together. 
Jesus said, I'm going away and I'm preparing a place for you. And it comes from God out of heaven. And He is its architect. He has designed it. So the writer of Hebrews says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive on the earth as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For watch this, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And as we sit in this room today, there should be this eager expectation, knowing that all things are going to be destroyed here, that we're going to a place that's going to be so new that you can't even describe the newness of it and the beauty of it. And God has prepared it just like a bride. Have you ever seen an ugly bride? They don't exist. On the day of her wedding, her hair is done, that makeup is done, and when that man is standing at the front and she's walking down the aisle, she has never looked more beautiful to him in that moment. And John looks at this city that's going to come, that's coming down, he calls it the bride. Why does he call it the bride? You know why he calls it the bride? Because the bride's in the city, and it's a bride adorned by him, and the bride is beautiful. He has made this city. This, and, he, and here's the bride coming down in this new city. And it is absolutely fascinating and beautiful. The Jews had four things connected to their wedding ceremonies. There was the betrothal period where you got engaged. Two families came together and they signed up a contract. Okay, they're going to get married together. And, and uh, it was a binding contract. And then the man, he began to get the house in order, build a house, get a place so that once they were ready, and so he would go away in the betrothal period and he would work on that, getting things together. And then when he got everything together, they came back and then there was the presentation where there was this week-long thing of partying and they would come together. Here's the bride. There would be this presentation and then there would be the ceremony where they would exchange vows together, and then there would be the consummation after the vows. In eternity past, the betrothal time took place where God wrote the names of His own in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. So the betrothal took place in eternity past when God the Father pledged to give the Son a redeemed humanity The presentation, the presentation occurred at the rapture of the church where the bride was taken to be with the bridegroom. And for seven years there would be wonderful celebration in heaven during the tribulation period. And I believe at the end of that tribulation period, the great ceremony takes place that Christ returns with the bride and the millennial kingdom begins and there's the marriage supper and feast of the Lamb. And it's followed by when God dissolves this world by the consummation that his bride, his, his wife, his people will be with him for all of eternity in a new city, in a new heaven, and a new earth. And so John is trying his best to describe what he saw, and it was amazing. Thirdly, the presence of God. Look at verse 3 of Revelation 21. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And John is wanting to repeat what he heard. He wants us to get this reality. Where we are going to live ultimately is where God lives. And so he repeats it five times. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Five times in one verse, there's the emphasis of God no longer being far off or that sense of him being far off anymore. No, he's right there, shining in the brilliance of his magnificent Shekinah glory, unbelievable glory, and we live in the light of that, the new heaven and the new earth. Guess what it doesn't need? It doesn't need a sun. It doesn't need a moon. There's, it's just lighting up. It's this brilliant diamond, colors, amazing, and we will be with him forever. And we will, by the way, see him as he is. If he showed up in the room this morning and said, here I am, Jesus Christ, we would all die. But there, we will see him. As he is. We've got to make sure we get this. We will be in the manifest presence of the Lord. No longer will we wonder about what does he look like? What's he like? No, he's right there. And we will see him. For we will never be able to get away from the glory of his presence. Ever again. And I can't imagine the kind of glory that we are going to behold. You remember Moses? Lord, I want to. I want to see you. And God said, uh, you see me, you die. But I tell you what, I'm going to put you up on the mountain and I'm going to pass by you. I don't know how this worked. This must have been an amazing moment. And God says, I'm going to pick you up and put you in the cleft of a rock. So God passes by, picks up Moses, puts him in the cleft of the rock. And he says, Moses, I'll let you see my backside. But if you see my face, you'll die. And so God passes by, he speaks his name over Moses. And he reveals the backside of him, his glory. Whatever that means, I don't know what that means, but he reveals this aspect of his glory. So magnificent was it that Moses' head lit up. And they had to cover his head. And this was a consistent practice from then on that happened and took place. Because it, and they covered this because there was, watch this, it faded. That glory faded. We're headed to a place where the glory never fades. Never fades. We will behold the magnificence of His glory, this consuming fire of a God, and we will not be burned up. The Bible tells us that there will be no temple. A temple is for a place to go and worship. Revelation tells us in twenty one twenty two, He is the temple. He's the temple. So anywhere you go in the city, guess what you do? You worship. I think this... I think that we're going to do all kinds of things in heaven. I think we don't have any clue about it. I think that we'll get to travel. I think that we'll plant gardens. I think that we'll do all kinds of things. If you think that we're just going to, Mark Donahoe is going to be or playing for us. I hope not. I love you, but I hope not, okay? I want King Jesus there, and he's going to be there. And I think, oh my gosh. I'll hug you. I'll hug you in a minute. Todd Hubenthal. Look at there. 
Some of you have no idea, but that's an amazing moment right there. I am so happy that you're here. Yes. Wow. I could almost just close the sermon right now. I won't. I won't. You're not that important, but anyway. All right. Yeah, we got one more verse. Yeah, we have one more verse. All right. Look at verse 4. I want to talk now about the passed away things. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All these things that are mentioned there are the standard elements of life here. And five things are going to be gone. Satan. He will be gone. Revelation 20.10 says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There will be no more Satan in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be no more sin. No sin. The old order is gone. Sorrow, thirdly, will be gone. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. This reveals that the new heaven and the new earth will be this incredible place of comfort. When we get there, we're not going to... Sorry if you've said this before. You're not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. When we get to heaven, we're not going to cry. We're not going to cry. There's a possibility these new glorified bodies we get don't even have tear ducts. There will be no tears in heaven, no crying, no weeping. Every moment of every second of whatever time is in that place will be joy. There will literally not be anything to cry about. There will be no shame, no regret, no loss, no loneliness, no brokenness. And God will minister to those forever and ever and ever who previously suffered so much on earth as the ultimate fulfillment of the way they were here when he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and they will be forever comforted. So Satan will be gone, sin will be gone, sorrow will be gone, and separation will be gone. And death, John said, shall be no more. Death has been this inescapable fact of life ever since the Garden of Eden. Science, by the way, does not have any answers for death. Its demise can only come from the almighty power of God who can loosen its grip and permanently do away with it. We know that the cross and the resurrection did this, that Death wears your sting. So there's a, there's a hope in this life before we get to the new heavens and the new earth that, that death is no longer permanent because there's a hope of salvation in Christ that our sins are forgiven. So there's this great reality, but in the new heavens and the new earth, it's gone, gone. Death has been put to death. And it's just gone. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come 
to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Separation is gone. Lastly, suffering is gone. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Mourning and crying are always usually connected with sorrow and suffering. And there will be no more the sound of sorrow, no more the sound of suffering. No one, watch this, will ever make the sounds of sorrow again. Can't even make them. Because the old order has been done away with. No depression, no sadness, no betrayal, no cancer. No pain, no sorrow, no separation. And the troubles of this life, every one of them, the disappointments, all the regrets, the do-over wishes, holding on to stuff, unforgiveness, all of the sorrows of this present life will have passed away. And Isaiah said, we will remember them no more. Can't find them. They will be done away with. We already know He's cast our sin where? As far as the east is from the west. That's been done away with. And all, the, all of that, all of that is gone. It's gone. And so Peter says this, while you wait for the new heavens and the new earth, what kind of people are you going to be? Well, you're going to be the kind of people who walk in godliness and holiness as we await what's coming. We live motivated in light of what He will bring. And so we say this, like John, like Paul, and like Peter. Come, Jesus. Come make things right. Because this is not my home. Even so, come. Let's pray.